welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy first Monday moon in June to my lawyer listener goons, tunes, and yes indeed, spoons. Another short week of cases with a relatively quiet week of immigration news. That means that a Patreon shout-out is in order. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the podcast's current patrons, Derek Upchurch, Eunice Scott, Lorraine Marte, Dave Burton, Paul Alabunmi, Pablo Rodriguez, Michelle M. Marty Rivera, and yes, now, even my own mom, who should be applauded for figuring out how to use Patreon all on her own. The podcast salutes you, mother, and is eternally grateful to all who are helping out on this labor of love. If you would like... To join these prestigious ranks, go to patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or check out the link in the show notes. Now, to the Fifth Circuit we go. The first case this week is Lopez Perez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on June 1st, 2022. This case is about asylum. Ms. Lopez Perez is from El Salvador and entered the United States without authorization in 2016. When discovered shortly thereafter by DHS, she was placed in removal proceedings and applied for asylum and related relief. As the basis, she claimed to have suffered past persecution and to fear persecution on account of her membership in the particular social group, quote, Salvadoran women in domestic relationships who are unable to leave, end quote, or, quote, Salvadoran women who are viewed as property by virtue of their position in a domestic relationship, end quote. She feared her ex-partner in El Salvador, who had done terrible things to her. She fled, he threatened to kill her, and she decided that rather than be with him and risk death, she would smuggle herself through Guatemala and Mexico and to the United States. It looks like the immigration judge decided the case before Attorney General Sessions issued matter of A.B., because the IJ found those particular social groups cognizable under matter of ARCG. 
But then the IJ held because Ms. Lopez Perez hadn't reported the abuse to police, she failed to show that the Salvadoran government was unable or unwilling to protect her. It also appears that the IJ made a no-nexus finding. More on that in a sec. The BIA dismissed her appeal because she failed to file a brief. Now right out the gate at the Fifth Circuit, I suspect Ms. Lopez Perez is going to have big problems because of the Fifth Circuit's decision in Jaco v. Garland, episode 79. And indeed she did. It appears, although it's a bit unclear, that despite finding the particular social group cognizable under matter of ARCG, the immigration judge found that the harm Ms. Lopez Perez suffered and feared was not on account of that cognizable particular social group. Reading the tea leaves of this short decision, it seems that the Fifth Circuit isn't so sure about that logic. But it doesn't really matter here, because in Jacko, the Fifth Circuit essentially said that it agreed with matter of AB, notwithstanding Attorney General Garland's vacation of that decision. And that, quote, the social groups identified in Jacko are nearly identical to those claimed by Ms. Lopez Perez, end quote. Because in Jaco, the groups were Honduran women who were unable to leave their domestic relationships and Honduran women viewed as property because of their position in a familial relationship. Accordingly, even though it's not the logic used by the IJ or the BIA, the social groups proffered by Ms. Lopez Perez now are not cognizable in the Fifth Circuit. Therefore, quote, remand would be futile, end quote. The particular social groups are not cognizable in the Fifth, even though they almost surely are everywhere else at the moment. Remember this, though, practitioners in circuits with favorable particular social group case law. A quote, IJ is bound to follow the law of the circuit, end quote, and not the BIA or the Attorney General when it comes to the cognizability of particular social groups. Chevron deference may indeed apply to BIA decisions explaining what is required of the analysis, you know, immutability, particularity, and social distinction. But whether certain asserted groups meet that standard, it would appear, are questions where circuit law trumps. So it seems. And that is Lopez Perez v. Garland. The second and final case is also from the Fifth Circuit. Bertrand v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on June 3rd, 2022. Can you believe it? Only two? And both from the fifth? I cannot. This case is about the unable or unwilling to protect prong for asylum. Mr. Bertrand presented himself at a port of entry in California in 2017 and asked for asylum. The U.S. government placed him in immigration prison and transferred him to a prison in Texas. Because of DHS's forum decision, an immigration judge sitting in Texas decided the case. Mr. Bertrand testified that, quote, starting in August of 2009, he began receiving threatening telephone calls, which he attributed to his being a voodoo priest, end quote. He received more calls, and a month later, people broke into his shop, beat him up, cut him with a machete, and poured gasoline on him. It seems he was not set on fire only because a police car drove by. Police took him to a hospital, during which time the attackers returned and completely destroyed his shop. A few months later, attackers entered his home while he was away and killed his sister, his daughter, and another woman. Police said they'd investigate when he reported it. Mr. Bertrand did not wait around and went to go live with his mother in another city in Haiti. 
But later that year, quote, a group of people with machete sticks entered his mother's house, beat her, and burned the house down, end quote. The mother was hospitalized, but Mr. Bertrand escaped. Police did not help. Mr. Bertrand fled to the Dominican Republic, different country, same island, and lived there for four years. Like so many Haitians, he then left for Brazil in 2013 with the travel visa and lived there until 2016, when he made his way up to the United States. The IJ and the BIA denied asylum. At the Fifth Circuit, it seems that Oil wasn't so sure about the BIA's finding that the Haitian government was not unable or unwilling to protect Mr. Bertrand, because it requested a remand to the BIA to do the analysis again, which the Fifth Circuit granted, and which the BIA did, again, denying, again. On this now second petition for review, and for a variety of reasons, the only issue before the Fifth was, quote, whether one, the BIA applied the correct legal standard in determining that Mr. Bertrand had not shown the Haitian government to be unable or unwilling to protect him, and two, whether substantial evidence supported its conclusion, end quote. The Fifth Circuit answered yes and yes. Although we've of course discussed it before, it's worth remembering, and there are only two cases this week, quote, persecution refers to harm inflicted either by the government or by private actors whom the government is unable or unwilling to control. End quote. Therefore, when an asylum applicant doesn't fear the country's government itself, they must show that the government is unable or unwilling to control the private people, the mob, or the giant group that wants to kill the applicant. This is the framework that the asylum treaty crafters made many years ago. Or so many scholars seem to say. To satisfy the unable or unwilling to protect prong in the fifth, quote, where private actors are concerned, the applicant must show that the government condoned the private violence, or at least demonstrated a complete helplessness to protect the applicant, end quote. This in turn, quote, requires showing that a non-citizen's home government has more than difficulty controlling private behavior, end quote. Standards unmet here, said the Fifth Circuit, notwithstanding the crazy facts I just discussed. Quote, the police responded to Mr. Bertrand's September 2009 attack, took Mr. Bertrand to the hospital, and took a report about the incident. The police, along with a judge, responded to the next attack on Mr. Bertrand's home, took a report, and said that they would investigate. And the police similarly responded to the December 2009 attack on his mother's house in an entirely different city and took her report. End quote. As you can tell, police have become a bit synonymous with the country's government over the years in asylum law, for better or for worse. Quote, a government is not unable or unwilling to protect against private violence merely because it has difficulty solving crimes or anticipating future acts of violence, end quote. But what about the fact that all of this kept happening to Mr. Bertrand in a short period of time? Doesn't that indicate that the government and the police were unable to protect him during that time? notwithstanding any possible willingness, because again, it just kept happening back to back to back, undiscussed. And Mr. Bertrand lost his case. Let's dive into some footnotes. Lots of interesting things going on in the footnotes here. First, again, the Fifth Circuit already said last year in Jocko that it doesn't care that Attorney General Garland vacated the matters of AB because it agrees with Attorney General Sessions that the matter of ARCG-type particular social groups are not cognizable. That's the issue I just discussed in that first case. But the matter of AB said a lot of things. 
One of the other things it said also had to do with the unable or unwilling to control prong. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Attorney General Sessions believed that it was more difficult to meet than do many of the circuits. Well, here, the Fifth Circuit made clear that it agrees with Attorney General Sessions there, too. The former Attorney General and the Fifth Circuit's unable or unwilling to control analyses align. And for this reason, the Fifth Circuit appears poised to refuse to follow whatever new regulations the Biden administration promulgates on the issue in the future. Can't wait. See you after the midterms on all that. Although the BIA does distinguish some favorable case law on the issue in a footnote, possibly in response to an amicus submitted by some professors. So thank you to the citation to matter of OZ and IZ from 1998. And indeed, the Fifth Circuit does hold that the police's, quote, failure to do anything beyond writing reports is stronger evidence of an unwillingness to help, and a government will likely only be able to help if it is first willing to do so, end quote. The court didn't believe the facts supported that here, but that's definitely a quote that I can live with. Finally, and completely unrelated, we have what appears to be the first post-Patel discussion, and it's a good one. And of course, it's in a footnote. First, the Fifth Circuit recognized that asylum decisions are not the type of, quote, discretionary relief decisions, end quote, covered by the jurisdiction-stripping statute in Patel, making that decision inapplicable to issues like those in this case. Not only that, said the Fifth Circuit, but the Supreme Court held two years ago in Guerrero-Lasprilla that courts retain jurisdiction to, quote, consider mixed questions of law and fact because the application of law to undisputed or established facts is a question of law covered by the Jurisdiction Saving Clause at INA Section 242A2D. In short, the exact jurisdiction saving argument and arguments that must be made going forward. And they're correct, by the way. And that is Bertrand v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.